I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Today, we have an outstanding and thoughtful conversation on stress, breast cancer, and the science of survivorship. We all, of course, experience stress, work, family, money. But what about health, in particular, cancers like breast cancer? Obviously, dealing with illness, indeed dealing with ongoing treatments and procedures, brings stress to a whole new level. How can women undergoing breast cancer treatments manage that stress? Perhaps more significantly, are there scientifically researched and proven approaches that not only help increase their health and well-being, but even improve the recovery process and results? This is the important work that Dr. Annette Stanton does. Dr. Stanton is Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry Biobehavioral Sciences at UCLA. She's also a Senior Research Scientist at the UCLA Cousins Center for Psychoneuroimmunology and a member of the Center for Cancer Prevention and Control Research in the Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center. Through research, Dr. Stanton identifies factors that promote or impede psychological and physical health in adults and couples undergoing chronically stressful experiences with a focus on the experience of cancers of the breast, pancreas, eye, and lung. She then translates her findings into action by developing and testing approaches to enhance psychological and physical health over the course of the cancer trajectory. In recognition of her research contributions, Dr. Stanton received the Senior Investigator Award from the Society for Health Psychology of the American Psychological Association in 2003. She was elected to serve as president of the 3,000-member society in 2012-13. to She also has received the Society of Behavioral Medicine Cancer Special Interest Group Award for Outstanding Achievement in Behavioral Medicine and Psycho-Oncologic Research, as well as the Outstanding International Collaboration Award from the International Society of Behavioral Medicine. And this November, she will receive the International Society of Behavioral Medicine Distinguished Scientist Award. She's been a BCRF investigator since 2004. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Stanton. Dr. Stanton, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. In so much of medical conversation and news, and and not just with breast cancer, but even more generally, we focus on the scientific breakthroughs, the new treatments or the medications or the procedures. And it's all, obviously, it's incredible and wonderful and and we're grateful. But in in reading about your work and your approach, um, focusing just on that hard science, and I, I don't, I don't mean to call that hard science. I mean, you're dealing in hard science as well, but just focusing just on the, you know, new medicines and the new breakthrough that may not be enough in seeking to maximize recovery. Is that right? Am I interpreting uh, uh, that correctly? Yes, I think that's right. Um, mostly. Um, I think it's right in that anyone who knows what it's like to go through breast cancer themselves or in a loved one knows that the experience and recovery are really far more than the mechanics of diagnosis and treatment. 
Um, it's the psychological experience of being diagnosed with a serious disease that could threaten your life and your goals in life. Um, it's going through treatments that can rob you of your energy and affect your ability to think. Um, it's the effects on the people who love you and how you interact with them. And it's really also how to move on in your life once your primary treatments have ended. So all of those are important parts of the experience that really deserve attention too. And that's where the science of survivorship comes in. Um, you know, the, the attention in the media and the scientific community on effective prevention and treatment and cure um, of breast cancer and other diseases is, is really well-placed. I mean, we all want a solution to breast cancer. Yeah. Um, the, the ability to live well after diagnosis also deserves a lot of attention. It's, it's such a, the, the phrase, the science of survivorship. How does that get integrated? How do you find does that get integrated? I mean, I, I read about what you're doing and I, I read your materials and I, and I think about it and I'm like, wow, this is exactly what I would think I would want or what anyone would want because what you just described about the, the stress and the emotional and psychological impact um, is extraordinary, and we all would be, you know, incredibly sympathetic towards that. How does the science and the tactics and the approaches around what you are talking about, how does that get implemented? Is that through the caring physicians themselves? Is it through other programs? How, how does that type of awareness and, and the science of survivorship, how does that become part of uh, the recovery process? Well, I think there two questions there maybe there's how the there actually might have been actually might have been about 10 questions in there but <laughs> you'll, you'll go through them I'm, I'm sure let me choose two of them choose, choose um, the best two the um i think the science of survivorship gets integrated through um really team science and so all of my collaborators are i have multiple collaborators i have um mostly oncologist collaborators, because most of the science that I do gets conducted through the breast cancer clinic or the oncology clinic. And so I'm, I'm collaborating with the oncologists who work in that way. Um, the, the application of the science of survivorship also can get translated through the clinic. And so when we find something that we think is really important and can help improve quality of life and health, then we work to translate that science into approaches that, um, that women can use um, in, in their daily lives. And that may be translated through the clinic. It may be translated through the internet. And so really both the science and its translation into intervening um, is is a it takes a it takes a team um, and it takes um, the acknowledgement I think on the part of the team that survivorship is really important you know this theme that you're talking about right now has been coming up in a number of conversations the the translational aspect of science and and both the the research component but also then with the learnings and and the the applying that and the approaches so so 
Um, I appreciate your having broken down um, my question into two. Um, let me attempt to break your response down into two as well. Let's break it out into the science one. And then two, I really want to get into the approaches and particularly the work that you've done around um, identifying, my, my word would be virtual um, uh, cohorts or, or support groups, but, but I know some of the online work that, uh, that you've looked into as well. Um, t- mm-hmm. talk to me about the science. You're working on multiple studies or, and certainly have worked on multiple studies that seek to identify the, the factors that can improve the outcomes, the quality of life after a breast cancer diagnosis. T- what do those studies look like? How, how do they work? And, and, you know, if you want to pick either the most recent one or, or one of the ones that stand out, uh, you know, in, in the past. Um, just talk to me about how those studies work, please. Sure. Um, we use, um, I would say, three basic methods to try to understand um, factors that predict quality of life and health for people with breast cancer. And um, the first is really focused on understanding whatever subject we're studying. And there, we're, we're usually using um, studies in which, longitudinal studies. So those are studies in which we recruit women typically from the clinic, but sometimes through, you know, me, the media and other outlets. And we follow them over time to try to understand what factors help and hinder them as they go through particular phases of the cancer trajectory. So that might be immediately after diagnosis and through treatment. It might be that post-treatment phase, what we call the re-entry phase, um, Mm -hmm. when you're finished with maybe your primary treatments, chemotherapy, surgery, radiation. It might be um, understanding the experience of women with metastatic disease. So so part of what we do is following women across time to understand what factors help and hinder them as through the course of their through the course of whatever phase we're studying. Um, a second approach is to bring women or sometimes these are studies that are experimental studies that are not specifically with women with cancer, but we're looking at basic processes. So we try to bring women into the lab and others um, and conduct experiments to understand the processes. So for example, if um, one of our findings is that um, women who actively accept their diagnosis, actively accept that this is what they have and this is what they need to deal with, those women do better over time with regard to having fewer depressive symptoms and other kinds of outcomes than women who really try to push the whole experience out of their heads and out of their hearts. So women who avoid. We also find that women who actively express themselves in terms of their emotions do better in terms of those outcomes. So we bring, for example, women into the lab and have them write about or vividly describe their experience in particular ways. So we might have them write about their deepest thoughts and feelings about their experience versus, for example, just the facts about their breast cancer experience. 
And that's in an experimental way. We use basically random assignment to understand then the outcomes of those different ways of approaching the experience. And then third, um, out in the community, we conduct randomized controlled trials to, um, to translate our findings into approaches for intervening that might help women then, for example, um, be able to approach their experience actively through acceptance and through emotional expression and through other helpful helpful methods of coping. So we basically go from the sort of the field to the lab and back again, trying to first understand the experience and then translate the findings. And what's so it it makes total sense. And what, you know, was just kind of blew me away and and is is I guess the (laughs) bottom line point is it makes tangible the the studies show your your trials and, and research have shown that those tactics translate, sorry to use your word, into actual results. You see positive results from women or or survivors or or people undergoing treatment who actively take those emotional, psychological measures and approaches and tactics as opposed to, unfortunately, um, women or or, or recovery uh, individuals who don't have that opportunity, for whom that's not part of their process. Is that right? I mean, there's just a, there's just a, a tangible, positive result out of these tactics. Yes, I do think it translates into concrete results. Um, one prominent example that I can think about that um, was supported in part by BCRF um, is called, we called Project Connect Online. And I got this idea really from women with breast cancer. Um, One woman who was in one of my research studies told me about um, the time when she was first diagnosed with breast cancer and her sister, who was an executive in a tech company, created a website for her to basically communicate on how she was doing through her diagnosis and cancer treatment to her loved ones who were, many of them were far away, you know, they were across the country. And so this kept them sort of apprised of how she was doing. And she, you know, she posted a photograph with her with no hair um, because she had gone through a chemotherapy that that uh, made her lose her hair. She posted photos of her doing um, doing activities that she loved despite what she was going through. And then um, when the tech executive also got breast cancer, her sister the first diagnosed yeah. was well enough that she could create a website for her. So they ended up creating websites for each other. And um, and the woman who was in my research told me how useful that was in being able to communicate with their network in a really personal way that really relieved them of the need when they were going through treatment and really tired and had, you know, sort of minimal resources that they really wanted to use on particular things, um, that they didn't have to tell the story repeatedly. It kept their network up on, you know, what they were doing and how they were doing. It told their network 
what they could use at particular times. For example, whether it was something concrete like, you know, um, one uh, one woman's son being brought to his guitar lessons, um, or you know, I can really use your cards and prayers this week. So anyway, that actually that conversation with that woman ended up launching Project Connect Online. Mm. Because even at that time, there were some sources, one is called Caring Bridge, um, where people with cancer or other diseases can post to their network, you know, the the people who love them, their friends, their family, coworkers, um, how they're doing with whatever disease they're going through. So there were, there were some sources out there, but... Um, and I knew that people were communicating online, but as far as I knew, no one had tested the effects of those sources, using those sources on how women did. And so um, we did, so far we've done two um, trials of Project Connect Online, and I work with a web web developer, and basically... Um, We randomly assigned, like the flip of a coin, randomly assigned women in this first trial, and this this was with any woman diagnosed with breast cancer, regardless of stage, time since diagnosis, et cetera, um, to either have their usual care, you know, um, and we provided them with some resources for contact if they needed psychological or wanted psychological resources, that sort of thing, or... Um, assigned them to Project Connect Online, which in a three-hour workshop, we, um, at the end of the three-hour workshop, basically they had created their own personal website to communicate with whomever they chose, um, and they could be very selective. You know, they could keep it to their immediate family, or they could keep it to their friends, etc., they had created their own personal website to communicate with others about their breast cancer experience. Well, the major, you know, so lots of people would call these blogs. um, And really what they are, what they became is sites to, um, to, to write about their experience and to communicate with their loved ones. And so we tested Project Connect Online first against um, standard care in yeah. an experiment and found that the women who had engaged in Project Connect Online and who had created websites and shared them with selected others, um, those women were less likely to have significant depressive symptoms they were they had a decline in loneliness they had an increase in the social support they perceived from friends they had an increase in their their appreciation of life um you know the 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 um the value they felt they got from life and some other outcomes and so and so those are the kinds of tangible results oh and they got an increase in confidence for how they were coping with cancer and so they those were the kind of tangible results we got 
from the women. And then in that first study, we also ask people who visited their websites, mm-hmm. so their loved ones, friends, etc. cetera. Uh, first, we found that it was mostly friends who visited their websites. And we found that the friends also reported that they got a lot of benefit from understanding what the women were going through from keeping up on their keeping up on their treatment, um, those sorts of things. And they also reported that they were likely to do what the woman had asked for on her website, you know, bring bring a meal or, or write her a card, those kinds of things. So that's one example of some of the kinds of benefits that we think are important as women go through the cancer experience. It's such an incredible example. I mean, first of all, for the, the women themselves, non-invasive, um, you, yep. know, no, you know, no after effects, you know, side, no <laughs> si- side effects, no negative side yep. effects. I guess a lot of positive after effects, but you know, you know what I'm saying, no negative side effects. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then that network effect that you just mentioned, which I, I would imagine, and I was trying to think about this in terms of, and, and I kind of was thinking about a question for you, but it just felt so, it, it felt a little bit inappropriate. I was going to ask you about, well, gosh, you know, your work, how do you think about, you know, look, when someone goes through breast cancer, um, they're not going through it alone. They're, well, one exactly. hopes they are not going through it alone. There is, exactly. in theory, and usually family members, loved ones, friends, and they're state, you know, they feel emotionally about the situation, obviously, as well. And, and so you just described there's a positive network effect as well. Um, it, it's just, it, it's, it's incredibly powerful. You, you said you had done two studies on that. I found, I think, one of them, uh, the one that you published in 2013. Um, and I don't know if that was the first of the two that you, published, but that was the... That would have been the first. Okay, yep. great. So so that, that, that's what I thought. Um, and, you know, you're based, you're at UCLA, so you're really in tune with, you know, how Hollywood creates titles. And I think that you just came up with a real Hollywood title here, Project Connect Online Randomized Trial of an Internet-Based Program to Chronicle the Cancer Experience and Facilitate Communication. So Steven Spielberg may not have, you know, that may not be Spielberg's title. <laughs> But, no, no. But in an academic, but you're, you know, you're in an academic. So it's a, it's a, you know, great title for, for what you do for a living. Um, what, what was the reaction to the study? I mean, it's you're in ground and territory that I could imagine a real mixed reaction to. I could imagine some in your world saying, holy cow, that is so incredibly positive to find non-invasive, non-intrusive, low cost, positive ways to impact people's lives. And perhaps, and I'm wondering this, are there others who said, come on, Stanton, that's uh, that's hocus pocus. What what was the reaction to your study? Well, let me first comment on some of the reactions of the people in the study. Please. Those are really the ones that matter, obviously. And you mentioned the network effect. So let me comment a little bit on that. Please. Um, one, of the, one of the most meaningful notes um, I've ever had about my research came from a daughter of one of the women in the study. And um, she wrote that her um, that she found the website that her mom found the website an incredible lifeline for her because unfortunately her mom had metastatic cancer it was very advanced and when she 
participated in this study. She came to the workshop. Um, she was, mo- you know, she was mobile. She was she was able to get out and, and around. Um, as her health declined over that next six months, and we measured outcomes primarily at six months, her health declined over that six months, and um, and so her daughter said that Project Connect um, was her lifeline to other people, and so she couldn't get out and around but that she could communicate through her website and others could communicate to her. And she could tell people, you know, when she was up for, she could tell selected people when she was up for a visit, you know, and she could tell people when she wasn't. And so, you know, she, the, 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 the daughter said, you know, thank goodness for this. Um, And so to, to have that kind of meaningful impact on a woman's life toward the end of her life, I think was, and her daughter, I think, I mean, that's part of what makes my research so, that that's part of what keeps me going every day. Um, I would imagine so. And then, okay, so let's talk about, like, the, the broader scientific reaction. Um Well, I have to tell you that I didn't, um, I didn't get any negative reactions and it, from the science community, and you know that's partly because um, I think I think there are a couple reasons for that. One, um, I did use an experimental method. Yeah. You know, I randomly assigned women to either this particular condition. Or in this case, a no treatment control. Now, you know, a standard care control. Yep. Now, that still has some limitations in methodology, um, but but at the same time, the the findings were so consistent from Project Connect Online that I didn't have a lot of skepticism about that uh, about the findings. Um, now. You know, you you do have to continue to replicate these kinds of studies and to compare them to other kinds of interventions. And so I think that, that that's really important to do regardless. We all would know that. I think the second thing um, that probably helped is that that, you know, I didn't say that this is – that the Project Connect Online does anything to cure cancer. Um, you know, we were interested in specific outcomes, depressive symptoms, loneliness, life appreciation, feeling confident in one's ability to cope. And so I think having those specific outcomes and measuring them in validated, scientifically accepted ways um, made the results more um, convincing, and I didn't attempt to say this is the next cure for cancer um, <laughs> because I don't believe that. Yeah. Um, that said, um, some of our, our writing studies, now I'm not talking about Project Connect Online, but a different type of writing study that I mentioned before, having women write about their deepest thoughts and feelings about their cancer experience versus the positive aspects of their cancer experience versus just the facts of their cancer experience. Um, one of the outcomes we use, we've used in that study, for example, is 
over the next few months whether women have treatment, I mean, I'm sorry, appointments with their oncologists that aren't for standard schedule reasons. So that means that they've had some kind of problem so that they make an appointment with their oncologist because they're worried about something, right? Mm -hmm. They have a symptom that they're worried about. And what we found is that writing about one's deepest thoughts and feelings um, compared to the just writing about the facts of the cancer, um, uh, those women had, the women who wrote about their deepest thoughts and feelings had fewer medical appointments for cancer-related problems wow. with their oncologists over the next several months. Wow. So, so, and again, that isn't about um, curing cancer, no. it, but it is about um, the kinds of potential physical health benefits and the ability to the ability to um, do well both psychologically and potentially physically um, from if you attend to some of the other aspects of survivorship if I could with apologies I know I'm supposed to uh, be asking you you know about uh, the application of your work uh, to breast cancer but it's occurring to me and and I imagine to folks listening um, is this is what you're describing able to be extrapolated and 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 I don't want to hold you to a proven scientific I, you you may not have researched this so this may be a you know asking you your your hypothesis but does 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 it surprise you be, because can this be applied to other aspects of one's life um, breast cancer is incredible you you study stress you study the emotional responses to stress and and emotional and actionable ways to mitigate stress and improve one's quality of life and you've just described how you apply that to situations around breast cancer so just you know br briefly to go outside of breast cancer um can one extrapolate some of these lessons to other stressful times in one's life or it, it is that dangerous to do because you haven't studied that necessarily I haven't studied that very much, although we do do some basic writing experiments with more than um, breast cancer patients. But the, the, one of the reasons I started these writing studies was because I was really interested in the effects of emotional expression versus emotional suppression, you know, suppressing mm. emotions, yeah. not not expressing them. And um, and I came upon a line of research. It was started by um, Dr. James Pennebaker, Jamie Pennebaker, and he had demonstrated that writing these this kind of what he called expressive disclosure, expressive writing, uh, in basic experiments um, with people going through stressors, and this could be, you know, Undergraduate, you know, undergraduate college students and then other samples had these effects on both psychological and physical health. And, um, and in part, I started these experiments because I, I didn't believe his findings. Hmm. Um, you know, I was skeptical. You know, how could this kind of 
experience, um, this kind of getting people to express deepest thoughts and feelings in an experimental setting have both psychological and physical health benefits. And so we started a line of studies, and one of them I was already working in uh, in cancer, and so the the one was the, my first one um, in a in other than a young adult population was in women with breast cancer, and I was really surprised to find that we found similar findings. So so actually, in the larger literature these kinds of approaches have been used in scores of studies um, and um, uh, reviews, systematic reviews, uh, what's called meta-analysis, which is a way of aggregating a bunch of studies, findings together quantitatively, um, do show benefit um, on both psychological and physical health parameters. Now, they're, um, they're, those findings are consistent. They are, um, they are, um, they're reliable, meaning consistent. Uh, they're, uh, and, and they do tend to hold up. Um, it's not a panacea. It's not, it doesn't take away all problems. It's not any kind of miracle. Um, but it is one one tool maybe in an armamentarium of things that can be resources that can be used to help people get through stressful experiences. Can we talk about you? You were born in France. You grew up in a small <laughs> town, I understand, in Kansas. And I, I'm I gonna, did. I, I confess I hear neither a French nor a small town Kansas accent, so I'm going to have to you know, rely on, on the research that, that all of that was accurate. Um, go ahead. Yes? It's, it, it's definitely not French. We were two when, I, when we moved back over. My dad was career military, and so... Uh. It's not French, unfortunately. I, that'd be sort of fun. Um, and but you know, this is sort of my small town in Kansas accent. So okay. maybe, yep. Maybe. May, okay. Fine. So I'm I'm no linguist. So let's uh, you know we'll, we'll assume this. You. But my my sense was you know the, you don't hear about that background necessarily um, very often, and and it struck me that that perhaps um, a, a quasi unique background. Um, must play a role in your unique take on stress and illness and recovery. Um, is that? Do you ever think about that? Is that accurate, or do you kind of what? What do you think about you translated into thinking about the world this way? I know for sure one thing that did, and um, and that was, uh, you know, I did come from. A town that is uh, that had when I was growing up in it, and I think still because um, I've been back, has no stoplights. You know, it is it is a truly small town, um, and um, and part of what motivated me, I have to say, was growing up in a stoic Midwestern family. And um, and we sort of didn't talk about stressors very much. Um, we didn't we didn't talk about things that were hard. Um, and so you know so that's sort of that kind of quintessentially stoic Midwestern you know Kansas farm girl um, mm-hmm. family. And and then 
Um, I have to say that, you know, my personal background is that when I was um, – and I was uh, I went to the University of Kansas, and then I did go on to graduate school. And when I was studying for my PhD, um, my father got diagnosed with cancer. Um, and so I both was in my family and watching my family go through this um, in our really stoic way, and at the same time, you know, communicating in our own ways how important we were to each other and um and I and at that same time I was on my clinical internship um at a big big uh, medical school medical complex and I was beginning to watch people go through diagnoses of life-threatening things um and I just became really fascinated in how some people become completely swamped by their disease, and some people, um, and in fact, most people, frankly, do just fine. It's mm. not that it's not hard, but you know, most people recover well and do well in life. And so I became really fascinated. That sort of convergence of the personal and the professional, it started me on my career track of trying to figure out what helps and hinders people and then what we can do about it. Well, um, I can imagine how influential that was. And uh, I guess there are uh, many people who are benefiting uh, from the fact that, benefiting today from the fact that uh, you grew up in a, very stoic uh, Midwestern environment. Um, that's, no, I, ho I hope so. I yeah. benefited from it. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you have. It sounds like you have. And, and uh, j just to, to, to close out, um, there's all sorts of uh, positive support, obviously, for um, the work that you do, and, and you're at UCLA, and there's incredible um, resource there. Um, w w what role has BCRF played um, in your research? I literally could not do my research without the support of BCRF over this. I've been here, here at UCLA for 15 years, and once I um, got supported by BCRF, um, I, I, I just can't imagine being able to do that. Well, no, I can't imagine. It's just simply true that I couldn't do my research without, in the same way, without the support of BCRF. BCRF really allowed me to pursue these kind of unusual ideas. You know, like Project Connect Online, uh, you know, came from a, a, a patient who was in one of my research, other research studies. And mm -hmm. I really, it was fascinating and I wanted to try it out. And it's really difficult to get support when you're a little bit starting from ground up and um and BCRF I think trusted you know the kind of the research that that the researchers supported by BCRF do to you know to to trust me um along with other funding agencies but they to trust me to do the that kind of novel let's try this out and see where it goes and then let's develop it along the road into really a program of research that ultimately 
gets translated in the real world in the in the clinic. Uh, BCRF enables that. I, I couldn't do that kind of, especially that early phase research um, without BCRF. Well, anyhow, that's uh, terrific that they do that and uh, terrific that that's enabled um, the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Stanton, for your time and obviously uh, for your work. My great pleasure. I'm so grateful to be able to do this work. Hi, it's Chris. I thought our conversation ended there, but I asked Dr. Stanton if there were anything else she wanted to discuss that we hadn't gotten to. She reminded me that I was curious about her important endocrine therapy studies and strategies to help women stay with the therapy. Here's what she said. Well, first, we needed to understand what was contributing to women not taking their endocrine therapy and what helped women take their endocrine therapy. So by endocrine therapy, we're, we're talking about agents like tamoxifen and the aromatase inhibitors um, that women often take, um, often following their breast cancer treatments, surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, and those, and then continuing um, for years. Um, and so typically it's a daily pill that women take uh, for the prescription used to be five years, now it's ten years, and sometimes longer. And so, and it is a uh, it is a life preserving treatment. So, the importance of taking your endocrine therapy really is um, can't be underestimated. And so, we first tried to understand the factors that contributed to endocrine therapy non adherence. That is, women not taking their endocrine therapy as prescribed, or what's called non-persistence, women stopping their endocrine therapy. And we first did uh, a study of um, more than a 1,000 women. It was a one-time survey study, and we assessed a number of factors that we thought might correlate with, relate to um, Women, women's non-adherence, and this was self-reported non-adherence, which has some problems, but does correspond, at least to some extent, with objective measures of adherence. Um, and we were interested in those women who had stopped their endocrine therapy, even though they had been prescribed to take it for a longer time. So we were interested in those factors. And in that first study of more than a thousand women. What we found um, was that the a, a less trusting relationship with their oncologist, so a, a, a relationship that was with their oncologist that was not as trusting, not as positive as it could be, um, a a lower perceived need. For the endocrine therapy, so they so they basically perhaps didn't hadn't been told or didn't believe the research that shows that endocrine therapy is associated with better survival um, from breast cancer. Um, more negative emotions about the endocrine therapy. Um, those kinds of factors were associated with more self-reported non-adherence. Also, those women who had stopped their endocrine therapy as also were more likely to report more depressive symptoms 
Um, and so they were more likely to be depressed than women who adhered to their therapy. Um, then they also reported more negative emotions related to their endocrine therapy, lower positive emotions. And so the, the, the original idea in some of this research was that basically it's all side effects. Women don't take their endocrine therapy because they have side effects from it and so stop taking it. And we actually found that the factors I just discussed were more potent in their relationship with non-adherence, self-reported non-adherence, than were the side effects that we assessed. So that was a little surprising to us. And I'm not saying that side effects aren't important. They really are. And there are several other studies that suggest that they are important. So side effects are important. Um, but there are other factors that also can be actionable that we can, that we can intervene on that might help improve adherence. Um, then in another study funded by BCRF, um, this one, we followed women from the start of their prescription through several months. And we actually had both self-reported adherence and we had them, um, it was a, an objective indicator of adherence. Basically, it's a little electronic cap that sits on your pill bottle. And every time you open it, um, it's assumed that you're opening it to take a medication. And so it records the date and time that you took it. And so you can measure daily adherence electronically. Um, there, we also found that um, depressive symptoms predicted lower adherence across the first months of being prescribed endocrine therapy. And one of the factors that was important in predicting more depressive symptoms was lack of social support, both by the oncologist and by women's loved ones. So, so that kind of lack of support, depressive symptoms, and objective measures of adherence um, were our findings in another study. Now we're trying to translate those findings into action through beginning to test approaches to help women stay on their endocrine therapy. So we're in the middle of that research. Thank you. I'm glad we got to cover that, and uh, it, that's as well in incredibly important stuff. So thank you. Oh, sure. That was my conversation with Dr. Annette Stanton. My thanks to Dr. Stanton for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.